Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis chapter 6 and 7 on what God was doing before the flood occurred and what God was looking for that he found in Noah. Now, we want to thank you for listening to Friendship with God and also remind you that Tom Cantor, our Bible teacher here on Friendship with God, is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries, a Jewish evangelism ministry that reaches millions of lost Jewish people. The past four years, we've reached well over 5 million lost Jewish people. In fact, we're sending out 110 missionaries this summer to go into 17 different cities to reach lost Jewish people. Now, if you have a heart to support Jewish evangelism, you can by supporting this Bible teaching radio program, but also you can make a donation towards Israel Restoration Ministries directly to Jewish evangelism. Now, there are many Jewish evangelism ministries out there, and we're all for them, but we also want to tell you the unique and distinct thing about Israel Restoration Ministries is that we do make the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and Jewish evangelism materials available and give them directly into the hands of Jewish people who are lost. We go door to door, street to street, person to person witnessing to them, answering their questions, befriending them, giving them the gospel, but also following up with them, supporting them, encouraging them to come to church, to get saved, to get baptized, and to be discipled and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, their Messiah. And we do see salvations and baptisms and fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ with our evangelical campaigns that happen in our summer blitz every single year. Help us to send out these missionaries with Israel Restoration Ministries by calling us with your support of the Friendship with God radio program or Israel Restoration Ministries by calling 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051, or go online to donate at israelrestoration.org, israelrestoration.org, or friendshipwithgod.org. Now here's Tom Cantor, our Bible teacher. Father, we thank you so much for your presence here with us. Lord, we count you the most welcomed guest. And so we pray, Lord, that in your presence that you would open our hearts, Lord, to receive this word as an engrafted word into our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would open our minds, that we might see wondrous things out of your law, out of your word, Lord, and look forward more after this meeting this morning, to your coming than we did when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, if you follow along here in Genesis chapter 6, as I read Genesis chapter 6, beginning with verse 17. And behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters to destroy all flesh, wherein is the breath of life from under heaven, and everything that is in the earth shall die, But with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons, and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring unto the ark, to keep them alive. With thee they shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of creeping thing of the earth after his kind. Two of every sort shall come unto thee, to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. In our last study together, we looked at, and you might want to take a look at that, in those verses 13 and 14. They're very important in Genesis chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, where we saw, And God said unto Noah, 
The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, and here's some very important words, I will destroy them with the earth. And don't stop at verse 14, just keep reading. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Room shall thou make in the ark, and so forth. It went that way. Those last words of verse 13, when you put them together with the first words of verse 14, paint a very clear picture of who God is. And those are the words that we need to embed within our minds, because this shows, the words I'm talking about are the words, I will destroy, make thee an ark. Just keep those always in your mind. I will destroy, make thee an ark. What does it show? It shows that God's judgments are always accompanied with his salvations. What does this mean for us today? This means that the more we see, which we do see, the clouds of God's judgment gathering in the sky, that means that the more God is looking to save sinners and the more we need to be about the Father's business, which is to seek and to save that which is lost. And to remind us of this, that God steps up his efforts to save the lost before the judgment comes. This phrase, it's very important. I will destroy, make thee an ark. I will destroy, make thee an ark. I will destroy, make thee an ark. That's the mind frame of God. And so now, when we come in verse 17, he says, Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven and everything that is in the earth. Now here we see God's continued announcement of the flood. And in that announcement, there's another particular phrase that's very important to grab our attention. And that's the phrase, behold, I, even I. Whenever God uses the word behold in the Bible, he wants to say something specific to us. He's saying, now, here's something that's going to happen. And the word behold tells you, I don't want you to miss it. It's very important. By using the word behold, God is wanting to say to us, it would be very easy for you to miss a very important point. So I'm highlighting it for you. If you want, this is God's yellow highlight marker in his Bible when he says the word behold. And what is it? Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters. So God knows that some will be tempted to read verse 17, the flood of waters upon the earth. And maybe in the future, some would be very tempted to only hear the Brian Williams newscast. On the newscast tonight, there was a flood of waters. So God makes it very, very clear that this is his work. And the main point about the flood is that it was God who brought the flood of waters. This was the work of God. Behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters. And that word do is also as if you would say, as in doing. It's an emphasis. It's doing. I'm doing this. I'm actively involved here. That's what we so much appreciate. I so much appreciate about President Bush when he said, and God is not neutral on these matters. You know, God is very active in the affairs of men. So the words, behold, I, even I, do bring a flood of waters, shows us that God brought the flood. Now, what words in verse 17, here's a question for you, show us what God's purpose was 
in the flood. What's the words? To destroy, right? To destroy. And God always has a reason for what he does. So his purpose was to destroy. And then he mentions a couple of phrases here, and they're interesting. God doesn't stutter and God doesn't waste words. So there are two interesting phrases here in verse 17 that I want us to focus in on because they give us a key to what happened to man. What happened to man that led him to become so corrupt that he brought on the flood? And the phrases are, under heaven and in the earth. That first phrase, under heaven, is a description of how men should have viewed themselves. Those words from under heaven are written from, like, God's perspective, so to speak. You know, they're under my heaven. I'm looking down on them. But they're interesting because when you parallel them, or not parallel, but contrast them with the three other words in this verse, in the earth, then we have a contrast between the two views that people could have of their lives. These are two dramatic ways of life. There's an under-heaven way of life, and there's an in-or-on-the-earth way of life. The under-heaven way of life is knowing that, is living life knowing that I am under heaven, that I am always under the eye of God, that I'm always being watched by God. It's to live life knowing that I'm always being evaluated by God. It's to live life knowing that I'm being scrutinized by God. And that's to live life actively believing what the Lord said, for example, in Matthew 12, 36, when he says, But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. The under heaven way of life is to live life as if tomorrow will be that day when we will all appear where it says we will appear and we'll all be receiving what it says we will receive in 2 Corinthians 5.10 when it says we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to what he hath done, whether it be good or bad. The under heaven way of life is to live life as if tomorrow is going to be the day that we will all be doing what it says we're going to do in Romans 14, 12, when it says, so then every one of us will give account of himself to God. The under heaven way of life is to live life looking up and realizing that life is being lived down here in the eyes of God. In other words, he's watching us. It's a vertical perspective in life. It's a looking up. And to help us keep that vertical perspective, that's why it's so important that we do what the Lord said to do in Luke 18.1, where he said men ought always to pray, because that keeps us trained in this under heaven way of life. It's to live on this vertical plane, looking up, realizing that God is always looking down on us. And the under heaven way of life is to have a preoccupation, if you want to think of it that word, to have a preoccupation or a fixation or an obsession with being concerned what the Bible says that we should be concerned with, which is, in Colossians 3, 1 through 2, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. That's the phrase. Things which are above. 
things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, and set your affections, and again the phrase, on things above. See, things above, not on things on the earth. It talks about things above versus things on the earth. And God says to have the under heaven way of life, we are to be preoccupied, fixated on, obsessed with things in heaven, things above versus things that are on the earth. In other words, this under heaven way of life is to see oneself as turning down, saying no to what earth has to offer, which are called the things on the earth, and to say to them, those are temporary enjoyments, and I choose rather the choice to want or to desire to go after what heaven offers later for permanent enjoyment. And that's an identity that's a very real identity, a self-identity, a self-esteem, self-image, I should say, a self-image that's described in Hebrews 11.3 when it talks about the people of faith when it says these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them. In other words, they were obsessed with them. They were fixated on them. They were concerned with them. And embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Now, who's the poster child for this? It's Moses. Moses is the poster child for the under heaven way of life. Why? Because when it describes Moses in Hebrews 11, that same chapter, it talks about, by faith, Moses when he was come to years, refused, see, things on the earth, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy, saying no, to the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming, otherwise saying, being obsessed with, fixated on, or concerned over, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. Why? for he had respect unto the recompense of reward. He had respect for the reward. Now, on the other hand, so that's, that's what it is to live in the under-heaven way of life. Now, on the other hand, there is this on-the-earth way of life. The on-the-earth way of life is to have, instead of the vertical, to have a horizontal perspective, just in seeing and, and being conscious of only what is on the earth. The on-the-earth way of life is not to see earth as under heaven, as under the eyes of God, because after all, there is on the earth that's described in Psalm 14:1, where the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They've done abominable works. So the on the earth way of life is to see life as one ride, one ticket, one ride with the you only live once type of mentality, which is a statement when you say that, when a person says that, you'll only live once and get everything you can out of life. That's a statement that denies that there's anything more than the first birth. There's nothing more than the births that occur in the maternity ward at Grossmont Hospital. There's nothing more. That's it. That's just that. And to say you only live once is to deny that there is another birth, a second birth, or being born again, that happens anywhere where a sinner turns to find God's mercy and receives God's remedy 
the Lord Jesus Christ as for his sins, see? So the goal on the earth or in the earth type of life is to reach a point where you take it easy, where you have an early retirement, where you can eat and drink and be merry. The on the earth way of life puts the bumper sticker on his car that reads, the one that has the most toys wins. Because the the on-the-earth way of life is just to have this preoccupation, this fixation, this obsession to be worried over what is described in Philippians 3.19 when it says, whose end is destruction, who mind earthly things. Things on the earth, who mind earthly things. We'll return with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, on Friendship with God in just a moment. We'd like to encourage you to sign up for Tom Cantor's daily devotional verse. It's available for free, signing up with your email by going to friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also donate online at friendshipwithgod.org to support this Bible teaching radio program. You can also call us now or after the program with your support and donation at 800 247 3051-800-247-3051. It'll help us to continue airing on this station in your city. You can also call us for a free gift for a lost Jewish friend that you know that needs to be reached with the gospel. Tom Cantor and Israel Restoration Ministries will give you a free gift to reach your lost Jewish friend, and that's made available by your donations and your support, but we'll provide that free if you have a lost Jewish friend that needs to be reached with the gospel. Call us at 800-247-3051. I will destroy, make thee an ark. Just keep those always in your mind. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body. Because the the on-the-earth way of life is just to have this preoccupation, this fixation, this obsession to be worried over. The the on-the-earth way of life is to have no interest in God whatsoever. It's to find a short discussion about God and the Bible as boring. And to have an intense study of the Bible and God as being downright painful. Like sitting in a dentist chair and having a root canal without anesthetic. (laughs) That's what it's described as in Psalm 10.4 when it says, The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. God is not in all his thoughts. In Psalm 10.6, he has said in his heart, I shall not be moved, for I shall never be in adversity. See, that's the framework. That's the mind frame of the on the earth. I'm not going to die. I'm not going to be moved, and I'll never be in adversity. And if I ever do die, there will always be enough morphine for me and loud music and headphones as I'm dying in the hospital bed to go to nothingness, annihilation. And it was very interesting, and you might want to turn to this in Exodus 18.21, because this was advice given to Moses on how to establish a management structure. I mean, after all, he had an organization of millions and um, a very content Jewish people. And so he had a problem on his hands, Moses did. And he got this very, very good practical advice, which we use, And it's in Exodus 18.21 where it says, Moreover, thou shalt provide out of the people. Now notice the qualifications and let's number them. Number one, able men such as, number two, 
fear God. Number three, men of truth. And number four, hating covetousness. And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. Let them judge the people at all times and so forth. Now, everyone wants to know the secret of choosing a good management team in a business. It's very important. The success of, of uh, not only Scandibus, but all companies is due to their managers. They run the company. They run parts of the company collectively. They run the company. Good managers will make a company. Bad managers will break a company. And so it's very, very important. But what you want to know is, how do you choose a good manager? And these verses tell us how. Because the verses tell us that, well, what's the first criteria? What's the first qualification for a good manager? Verse 21, what is it? Able men. They must have an ability I've seen businesses where family members were put in positions that they had no ability to manage, and it's just a disaster. I've seen businesses where people have been promoted up into an area that they had no ability to do just because of time they had been there and they didn't, couldn't manage. That was a disaster. So the first thing to do is to find a person who is able. He can do the job, but most companies stop there. And they say, okay, this person has the ability to manage, so we'll put him in the position. But Moses was told, don't stop there. Not so fast. Don't just choose a person for management because he has an experience on his resume. He's been to Kellogg School of Management or whatever school of management he happens to be in. And because there are three more qualifications which are important to have in order to manage people. And it's these are three additional qualifications given in verse 22. And they have to have, and what's the first, uh, what are they? Fear God. Fear God. God. And the next one? Men of truth truth and hating covetousness. Most businesses don't look for those qualifications. And what does it mean to fear God? A man who fears God is a person who lives with the under heaven way of life. He lives, he's afraid because he fears God, because he knows God's looking at him. He knows God's evaluating him. He knows God's scrutinizing him. He knows he's going to have to give an account to God. That's what it means, fears God. He's under the eye of God, and he knows he's not going to get away with anything, even though man may not see him. And so you keep building on this. You say a man of truth is a person whose doctrine, what he believes, lines up with his life. It lines up with his life. And a person who hates covetousness, and that's very important in business, we might plug in a word, ambitious. A person who hates covetousness is a person who is content with what he has, and he's not so ambitious that he wants to look forward to get to the top, no matter who he has to step on or what he has to do in order to get there. So does this verse mean that the best employees are Christians? You don't have to answer that. (laughs) I will. (laughs) Not at all. Some of our worst employees have been Bible-believing Christians. We have caught Christians who can quote the Bible forward and backwards. They teach being involved in horrible, terrible lying and pornography It got so bad at our company at one time, as John said, okay, the next person who comes in for an interview, we're going to ask the question for the job. So what do you do on Sunday? And if that person says, we go to church, we'll say next. (laughs) But if that person says, I get together with my friends, we all watch football and we get drunk, we'd say, you're hired. (laughs) I mean, that's terrible to say, but that's the truth. Why? 
Because just because a person says he's a Christian, goes to church, knows the Bible, that doesn't mean that he's living in the under heaven way of life. Wonderful expository teaching from our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Sign up for Tom Cantor's daily devotional verse. You can do so at friendshipwithgod.org. If you're enjoying the Friendship with God radio program, we'd like you to support this Old Testament teaching radio Bible teaching program. And you can do so by calling us now or after the program at 800-247-3051. That's 800-247-3051. You can also donate online at friendshipwithgod.org. Friendshipwithgod.org. Now, Tom Cantor Uh, teaches so well the Old Testament. He's just a master teacher of the Old Testament, the life of Abraham. We've been studying lately in the book of Genesis, chapter 23, and the Jewish people started with Abraham. Tom Cantor himself, our Bible teacher, is a Jewish born-again believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he wants you and others to reach the lost Jewish people of this nation and this world. Now, to do so, he's established Israel Restoration Ministries. He's the founder of this Jewish evangelism outreach ministry. We have full-time missionaries, part-time missionaries, and volunteers like you that help us in reaching the lost Jewish people in our cities and our neighborhoods. If you'd like to support Jewish evangelism or get Jewish evangelism materials to give to lost Jewish people that you know for free, you can call us at 800-247-3051. That's 800 800- 247-3051. You can also go online to israelrestoration.org. That's israelrestoration.org for free Jewish evangelism materials and information on how you can reach lost Jewish people, including how to receive the Jewish Messiah as your Savior. Find that plan of salvation online at israelrestoration.org or call us at 800 247 3051 800 247 3051